Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. And what is this a podcast of? Well, the words happiness and wellness always jump to mind, informing the audience, informing the public about important health issues, talking about things that you should be screened for, things that just help others. That's what the podcast is all about. And when I think about something that we always are kind of faced with, including myself, it's going to be weight. And am I overweight? Am I obese? And what should I do about it? So there's different ways I could have done this podcast. I think one way is going to be, hey, let's talk about diet and exercise. But, you know, I've had a lot of med students and some of the people that listen to my podcast ask me about surgery. What about bariatric surgery? And I don't have any answers for those. So today we have a super special guest. And what makes him special is the fact that he's a good friend of my wife and my wife like vouched for him. He's a cool guy. He's down to earth and he's super smart. So I want to put him on the podcast. And his name is Dr. Justin Braverman. And here's how we do things. I read his uh, bio and then we'll get to meet him. And look at his bio. It says, Becoming a doctor was always what Dr. Braveman wanted to do. When asked why Dr. Braveman chose bariatric surgery as a career, he stated, it provides me with the opportunity to not only help patients lose significant amount of weight, but to also potentially cure their weight-related diseases. Really, though, it gives patients a second chance at a healthier life. And that's what this podcast is about. Surgical weight loss increases energy, improves appearance, and most importantly, dramatically improves patients' quality of life. And that's what he truly loves to do. Dr. Braverman enjoys the continuity of care that comes with bariatric surgery as he gets to know his patients through their weight loss journey. And having performed over 3,000, I had to double check that number, it seemed like a lot, (laughs) bariatric operations, he is one of the most experienced and safest weight loss surgeons here in California. Dr. Bregman's hobbies include physical fitness, oil painting, 
gardening. I don't know if that's, I have to ask him about that. <laughs> and uh, playing softball. Most of all, he loves spending time with his wife and young children and in, enjoys taking advantage of living in sunny Southern California. And with that being said, Justin, thank you for being here today. How are you doing? Good. Thanks, Dr. Raj, for having me. It's a pleasure. All right. So we're going to do a little meet and greet at first, and then we'll jump into some of the questions that I have from my listeners and a couple of med students. So let's start off with what was your major in college? And did that have anything to do with you being a doctor? (laughs) Yeah, no, I was a biomed pre-major, you know, so I think that's kind of the most common undergrad major for people going to medical school. But I also had a real strong interest in animal behavior and biology. So it was something I actually loved. I knew from a young age that I wanted to be a doctor. A couple of my friends' parents were physicians. And I remember going over to their house and seeing like pictures of colonoscopies on the kitchen table. And for whatever reason, I'm like, that's kind of cool. It didn't make me lose my appetite. And I also always liked being challenged. And um, I figured that being a physician, it's a challenging career. You have to be at the top of your class, top of your field. It's competitive. And I've always been a competitive person. And I knew it would give me the opportunity to also help people. I I didn't want to go into engineering. I didn't want to go into business and just make money. I, I wanted to have a career where I could financially do well, but also give something back. And uh, I knew that from a young age. And so I just kind of knew that biology was a a major that everybody took who goes into med school. So it kind of drove me into that field, but I loved biology in college. It was uh, at the University of Illinois. It was um, a very common major. You know, I have classes with 800 kids in it, but uh, I got a lot out of that. It led me to get a master's in physiology after my undergraduate career. Nice. And then that led to a medical degree. How did the road fork? Because when you, after med school, you could choose one of two paths, the path of medical doctor, medicine, and yay, internal medicine, or you could be a surgeon. So why did you kind of veer towards the surgery side of things? Like I said, I've always liked a challenge. I always pushed myself growing up. I was a competitive wrestler in high school and college. I played a lot of sports, baseball. I just retired from softball after 40 years of playing. And I also knew, at least thought I knew, that out of all the fields of medicine, that surgery was one of the toughest. You had to be not just smart, but you had to be, well, brave. You have to be kind of a badass to be a surgeon. And I kind of thought I was a badass. I'm not sure if I'm a badass or not. But I kind of wanted the chance. And I also, in med school, realized that, you know, there's no field like surgery and where you get to make an intervention and see an immediate change, an immediate result. You know, as an internist, you got somebody with hypertension and you play with the meds and you bring them back a couple months later. It looks like they're doing a little, you might tweak them. You come to me with a surgical problem. I come at you with a knife and fix it. And the next day it's gone. And so I kind of like immediate intervention that, that was rewarding to me. I also knew that surgery was, as far as residencies go, kind of one of the hardest to complete. And it still is. A little still tougher is. to do. Yeah. During mm-hmm. my, uh, the middle of my residency back in the early 2000s, they made a law where we couldn't work more than 80 hours a week. <laughs> so that, that cut my work hours down, you know, in residency <laughs> down to, down from like 100 to 80, which was, you know, such a great benefit. But um, I didn't mind the punishment. I kind of liked it. And so I was able to get in there and do it. And I liked that the, there was immediate reward and the acuity of it all. And in my training, I did everything. I was at Mount Sinai in Chicago. We did trauma and transplant and everything. And so 
I also realized I wanted to have some work-life balance. I mean, as much as I like the competition and the intensity of it, I also didn't want to make it my life. I wanted it to be a career. So I wanted to have a family and be able to spend time with the kids. And my dad and mom never missed a single event growing up. And I wanted to to do the same thing. I didn't want to miss any of my kids' plays or performances. And so after doing all the subspecialties, I kind of realized that I wanted to do something a little more focused. And so I went after my five years of general surgery and one year of research and transplant, I went on to do another fellowship in minimally invasive surgery. Okay. During that fellowship is when I really got exposed to this field, bariatrics. About half of the cases I were doing were on weight loss surgery patients. And in residency, I didn't do any. And so after about a year of getting to know the field and realizing that there were some misconceptions about it, I I wasn't sure it was safe. I wasn't sure if it was like a legitimate field of medicine, to be honest. Even as a physician, there there are some physicians who don't think this is a, a real field. Um I thought it was more of a plastic surgery kind of thing. But after spending a year dedicating myself to learning about it, I realized it's it's much more than that. It's a quality of life field. It dramatically improves quality of life. When I was doing general surgery, um, you know, a patient would come to me with a hernia. I'd fix the hernia. I'd see him once after surgery and we'd part ways. I didn't get that continuity of care. In this, I now get to do one surgery that doesn't just cure the number on a scale. It cures the 10 associated diseases or at least improves the diabetes and the hypertension and the sleep apnea. I get long-term follow-up in bariatric surgery. On average, we see our patients about five to seven times the first couple of years after surgery and hopefully once a year annually. Yeah. Long-term relationships with patients. I feel like I get to be a little bit of a family practice physician and I get to see all these other issues resolved. You know, they lose the weight, the diabetes goes away. And I get patients who come back to me and it's the little things that make me happy. It's great seeing somebody's blood sugar come down, but (laughs) I see these patients with these huge smiles on their face. I crossed my legs for the first time in a decade, Dr. B. (laughs) I bought shoes with laces. I'm I'm busting out my disco pass from the seventies that I haven't seen in three decades. I'm able to make love again. I mean, it's, it's the things that people forget they enjoy that this field gives back to them. And so there's very few fields of medicine that I think are this rewarding and it's real safe. Nobody needs a gastric bypass at midnight. I'm home almost all night. There's very few emergencies. There's very few complications. It's not banker's hours, but I do have work-life balance in this field. So I'm sure glad it ended up in this fashion. I like your passion already. And I can see why my wife said we have a lot in common. I love that answer. So let's start off with the general, okay? So um, bariatric surgery for the general public. What is it? How does it work? I'm going to do a follow-up so I won't be over speaking, which is I want to talk about some common types. And I really kind of narrowed it down to the ones that we hear about most on TV and at doctor's offices, sleep gastrectomy, gastric bypass, and gastric banding. Can you talk about those things? All right. So the field of bariatric surgery, bariatric is Latin for pressure or weight. So this is the field of medicine that addresses weight. To be a candidate for bariatric surgery, I don't just operate on anybody. I mean, you have to meet certain criteria, and it's based on a few things. Predominantly, body mass index, and if there's any associated illnesses related to the weight. So body mass index is basically a calculation where we index your height versus your weight. I used to have it memorized, but you just type it into a calculator. For patients (laughs) out there, you can just go to a search engine and type in body mass index calculator. You type in your height and the weight, it'll spit out a number. Normal range is 18 to 25. If your BMI is above 30, that's the definition of obesity. For insurance coverage for weight loss surgery, Mm -hmm. 
You have to have a BMI of 40 or above based on your weight alone or between 35 and 40 with one of three comorbid conditions. Comorbid means related to. So the three diseases, if your BMI is between 35 and 40, that would qualify you for the procedure from an insurance perspective are diabetes, Mm -hmm. high blood pressure, or sleep apnea. Oh, okay. Those three diseases are all that counts. So even though heartburn and high cholesterol and arthritis and 60 other disease processes are related to obesity and caused by obesity, the only ones insurance look at are diabetes, high blood pressure, or sleep apnea. So BMI above 40, based on weight alone, insurance says yes, 35 to 40 with one of those three disorders. As far as the three main options, you're you're right in the sense But right now, 99% of weight loss surgeries in the United States are really just gastric sleeve or gastric bypass. Okay. Just for the non-medical people. Yeah, I want to hear this. I want to hear this. Gastric means stomach. Okay. So these are just stomach operations. So as bariatric surgeons, we just call them the sleeve and the bypass. Okay. 10 years ago, the most popular operation was the lap band. This was basically a hollow inner tube about the size of like a small ring. It was like an inner tube with a buckle on it that you could put around the upper portion of the stomach and buckle. Okay. By placing it there, it would put the stomach into kind of like a hourglass-like shape, kind of like a snowman with a little Ah. tiny pouch above the band and then the normal stomach and intestinal anatomy below. It's definitely the least invasive of the three options, but it's also the least powerful. This device can be adjusted. The band itself is attached by a small little tube to a port device that's about the size of a quarter. And that port would go somewhere on the left upper side of your belly, underneath the skin. If you're naked looking in a mirror, you can't see any of it. But if you push, you can feel that little port. And that port can be accessed with a needle. It's like a flu shot. You just stick it into the skin, you stick it into the port. And based on how much a patient's eating, how much weight they're losing, if they're throwing up or having heartburn, an experienced surgeon can determine if the band can be or needs to be made tighter or loosened. And that's just done with that little needle through the port. So if it's tighter, you stick the needle in there and you inject saline. Okay. Travels up the catheter and it fills the band. And the more saline you put in there, the tighter the band gets. And basically what that does is it causes a feeling of restriction. So imagine something tied around your stomach and having to eat through that. So as food would get to the level of the band, it acts as like an obstructive device. And if you don't chew well or wait a minute in between each bite, the food doesn't have time to get through the opening and it sits in there and it'll it'll make you sick. So immediately patients are forced to chew better, eat slow. A portion becomes what you could basically fit in the palm of your hand. It does require healthy eating behaviors, a little exercise, but it really restricts how much you can eat. The average weight loss with the lap band tended to be about 50% of the excess weight. So if you're a hundred pounds above weight, Mm -hmm. you'd likely lose about 50 pounds over a two to three year process. Most patients would require about four or five adjustments in the clinic. It's done in the clinic. There's no anesthesia needed, not even numbing of the skin. The advantages of this device are it's adjustable. It's an outpatient procedure. It's safe. And it was relatively effective if you put the effort into it. But we do very few bands today. The procedure has pretty much gone by the wayside. The main reason being when we started to look at the long-term data with the lap band, after using it for 10 or 15 years in the United States, what we realized, it had a very high long-term complication rate. Now, it's not life-threatening complications. The most common complication with the lap band was something called a slip, Hmm. which is just like it sounds. It's not really the band slipping. The stomach from below the band would prolapse or slip up through the band and then maybe flop over the side and it would kink, which would lead to pain or vomiting. 
And what ultimately we realize is that about one out of every three bands that were placed had to be removed. We've kind of scrapped the procedure because sure. the sleeve and the bypass, which make up 99% of what's done, okay. are safer long-term and get better results. Ah, so, okay. You know, they're a little bit more invasive. You're less likely to ever have a long-term complication with those two than you are with the band, especially one requiring surgery. Yeah. And you get better results with those two, faster and more powerful. So the country basically is about 60% sleeve and about 40% bypass. That's okay. the distribution. Now, on the outside, there's really no difference between the two procedures. Okay. They're, they're laparoscopic operations mm -hmm. done through five tiny incisions. I, I do five incisions. Some programs maybe do six or seven. These incisions are all about the tip of the pinky finger or less, so like half an inch or less. Through those incisions, I put in a special camera, instruments, and the whole procedure is done on a big flat screen TV. They're quick operations. You know, they typically take like an hour or less uh -huh. and they're relatively easy to recover from. They, they okay. have similar recoveries to uh, laparoscopic gallbladder surgery, which is the most common surgery done in the United States. So it's usually one night in the hospital, two or three days of pain medication. My patients tend to describe it as having felt like they did a hundred sit-ups the day before, but within one to two weeks, you're pretty much not only back to work or school, but I clear patients to do some light exercise a week after surgery. You can go to the gym, do some weights that are supported, like sure. training with light weights and do a little mm -hmm. cardio. So you're kind of back at it within a week or two for most patients. So what is the sleeve? It, I mean, it, it kind of, let me visualize that a little bit better. What's the sleeve? Yeah, I wish I had a good diagram. You're um, pretty, you're a good storyteller, man. I'm, I'm eating some marshmallows while you're telling me. <laughs> this is a stuffed animal a patient gave me. Berry, uh, berry the sleeve. And it's basically a picture of a stomach. All right. So your yep. stomach kind of looks like this. Yeah. So this is your esophagus. This is your stomach. This is the intestine. To do a sleeve, the first thing we do is after your sleeve, mm -hmm. the anesthesiologist is going to take a long flexible tube that's got the diameter of an index finger. That tube goes in the mouth, down the throat, and it's advanced until it's inside your stomach. Once it gets in the stomach with my instruments, I grab and manipulate it and I get the tube to look kind of like this. So it goes into the stomach and then okay. I get it pushed up against what's called the lesser curve of the stomach. This is the greater curve. Now, the greater curve of the stomach is made of very thin muscle. This part was designed to stretch so you can eat a lot. Ah. This side, the lesser curve is made of three layers of braided, thick, tough, leathery muscle. This side okay. just doesn't stretch so well. So once I get this tube pushed up against this side, the more yep. muscular side, I can see the tube through the wall of the stomach. I identify the beginning of the small intestine mm -hmm. and walk back along the greater curve about an inch. Mm -hmm. And from this location at the bottom of the stomach, I start stapling. The staples that we use divide the stomach and seal both sides of the divided tissue, kind of like a pipe. Ah, okay. So nothing okay. spills out. There's no bleeding. It just yeah. divides it and seals it. Gotcha. And what we do is we just basically staple from the bottom up until we hit the tube. And then I just staple along the side of the tube all the way up to the top of the stomach. So we use this tube as a guide to help us size the diameter of the stomach we leave behind, which basically means the inside of your stomach after the sleeve is about this wide. And everything you eat has to fit through a diameter of this big. So what happens to the greater, greater curvature? It just sits there. As, it's still getting perfused, obviously, by blood, but it just sits there and does nothing? Or does it necrose? Does so it no, it actually gets removed. Oh, it does. So after we finish stapling, yeah. this entire part of the stomach is brought out from the abdomen through one of those small incisions. Oh, basically discarded. We send a lot of our specimens to the cafeteria and they, they like to serve menudo the day after I yeah. 
right. So by removing a big portion yeah. of the stomach, this essentially has three powerful effects to help a patient lose weight. The first and most obvious one is I've taken your 30 ounce stretchable stomach mm-hmm. and I've left behind a three ounce muscular tube. Yep. This part of the stomach, since it's more thick, doesn't stretch as well. Okay. And that immediately causes a feeling of restriction. So now when a patient eats, they have to chew well, they have to eat slowly. They've got to wait for that first bite to move down a little bit before they put another bite or two on top of it. So it paces their eating. And what you'll find is after about 20 or 30 minutes of chewing well and eating slowly, patients will have finished what fits in the palm of their hand, about three or four ounces of food, and they feel a feeling of satiety, which means comfortably full. If you don't chew well, if you eat too quickly, or if you eat past that point of feeling satiety, the surgery punishes you. It hurts. You get this knot in your chest, you'll, you'll hiccup, you burp, your eyes water, you'll rub in your chest, and you'll sit there for 10 minutes until the bite either works itself down or more likely than not, you throw up. Once it passes, you feel better, but you kind of learn your lesson. <laughs> but that's all the lap band did. And yeah. that would get about 50% weight loss in three years. Sleeve patients tend to lose 65% of their excess weight within wow. one year. The reason is this is more of a, a metabolic procedure. These operations are going to have some powerful physiologic effects that's going to change a patient's neurology, some of their hormone levels. So it has a direct effect on metabolism. Wow. That's what do I mean by all this? Yeah. Right. Neurologically. We have a nerve that comes out of our brainstem. It's called the vagus nerve, runs down along our esophagus, and then runs past the stomach on this side. And as it runs past the stomach, the vagus nerve sends branches of nerves across the stomach that we call the crow's feet. Mm -hmm. It's like the foot of a crow. One of the ways our brains tells us to stop eating after we've started is as you eat and you stretch your stomach and distend it with food, eventually it gets stretched enough to tickle the crow's feet which then fire a message up the vagus nerve to your subconscious that says, stop eating before you rupture your stomach. And when I do a sleeve and I staple the stomach, I staple right across the crow's feet. I cut Ah. the nerves. So before surgery, your stomach's big. It's got these long nerve endings and it needs 16 ounces or so of food to be stimulated. After surgery, you got this narrow tube of the stomach with very short nerve endings that are now tickled by two bites of food. But the vagus nerve, it's kind of dumb. It doesn't know the difference between <laughs> how much it takes to stretch it. It just knows once it's stretched, fire the message to the brain to tell it to stop eating. So on a neurologic level, these operations trick your brain into thinking you had 16 ounces of food when you had three. And since that happens in your brainstem, it's subconscious. It's a reflex that you can't outthink. Ah. And then the third reason you lose a lot yeah. of weight with the sleeve is a hormonal change. The part of the stomach I take out <laughs> around here. This portion of your stomach right here produces a hormone called ghrelin, Mm -hmm. the growling of the stomach. This hormone ghrelin, once it gets inside your brain, it activates hunger receptors. So ghrelin triggers cravings and appetite. And when I do a sleeve, I'm taking out the part of the stomach that makes ghrelin. So after this operation, ghrelin levels precipitously drop. They're very low. And when you don't have that hormone pumping around, you're just not as stimulated to eat. So on a hormonal level, this procedure dramatically reduces cravings and appetite to the point where I have about 10% of my sleep patients who actually tell me they have to set an alarm on their phone to remind them to eat. Oh, wow. And for a lot of my patients, they, they don't believe that. They're like, come on, dude, I live my life. Everything I do is around food. And I'm like, no, that's going to change. And so this procedure takes away your appetite on a hormonal level. Mm-hmm. And then if you do get hungry, you can only have a few ounces of food because, well, your stomach's this big and your brain's been rewired. 
And those changes make the average sleep patient, again, lose about 65% of their excess weight within about a year. Now, the advantages of this procedure, consistent and easy to perform with good results. It gets better and safer results than the band, and it doesn't involve a foreign body wrapped around the stomach with a high complication rate. And when compared to the bypass, it's a little less powerful, but almost as powerful and just as rapid as a bypass without malabsorption. Bypass patients lose a little extra weight because they eat less, they get hungry less, but they also absorb less of what they eat, which is great for calories, but not as great for nutrients. Now explain what the bypass is. Now, I know that we're taking the small intestine and can be connecting it to the stomach. So explain what part of the small intestine are you connecting the stomach to the duodenum, the first part, the second part, the jejunum. And I dude, I exactly know what dumping syndrome is, but that's a key part of what, maybe why people don't do a gastric bypass. And you can talk in layman's terms what a dumping syndrome is. Gastric bypass, barely similar approach and recovery time as the sleep. One or two days in the hospital, one to two weeks to return to work. It's a little more powerful of an operation though, and it's got its own distinct advantages. And this is the most historic one, right? This is the first one that came out, Yeah, so this one's been around since about 1957, I believe, the first gastric bypass done in Minnesota, but it was a little different. It was done open. This became very popular around the turn of the millennium when laparoscopic surgery took over and we started doing this less invasive. That's when it gained popularity. Yep. And it's still considered the gold standard of weight loss surgery because well it's said. Okay. best weight loss and best resolution of metabolic problems, especially diabetes and heartburn, but different anatomy than the sleeve. The sleeve, we start here and staple up like that. The bypass, we start at the top of the stomach, go about an inch down and staple over and up to create a small little pouch at the top of the old stomach. After I create this little one ounce pouch, I then move to the bottom of the stomach I go about a foot downstream, and now we're getting a little technical here, but your colon is right here. You lift up the colon, and the small intestine comes under the colon. As the small intestine comes out from under the colon, it turns from the duodenum into the jejunum. So we're grabbing the very first part of the jejunum as it exits from under the colon, and when I see that, I divide it right there. All right, so once we divide it, I take this part, A, and I'm going to move it by pulling it up and over the old stomach, and I bring A up to the pouch and connect it. Gotcha. A moves from there up to there, and I connect it to the pouch over an opening about the size of a dime. After I make this connection, though, we're not done because I leave this part of the stomach inside. It doesn't move, it doesn't shrink, and it still functions in the sense that almost all the acid and digestive enzymes you make are made in the bottom of the stomach. These are the cells that produce acid down here. Sure. You make about two to three liters of digestive enzymes in this stomach every day. Okay. Wow. All this digestive juice, it needs a place to go because as if it were to head downstream right now, currently B is a dead end right there. Right. All right. So the second half of the operation is after I bring a up here and connect it to the pouch, then I go 100 centimeters, which is about four feet one, two, three, four, four feet down. And I take the old stomach and B and four feet downstream, I connect B back in there. I make a little opening and I plug B back in. Now this is going to cause weight loss by at least five different mechanisms. The first three are the same as this. A little pouch and a tight little opening causes restriction. Portion size becomes what you can fit in the palm of your hand. It takes 20 to 30 minutes to get three or four ounces down because you have to chew well and eat slowly. Otherwise food gets stuck. When I divide the stomach, just like when I divide it with the sleeve, I cut those crow's feet nerve fibers 
So they make them shorter, they get triggered more quickly, and your brain thinks you ate more than you did. Ghrelin, which is made here, is affected by this procedure, but also other hormones that play a role in appetite, like adiponectin, leptin, GLP-1, which are made by the small intestine. Nice. It's a little torn down endocrine. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So these procedures play a role in when we feel hungry, when we feel full, and they're triggered by the way food goes through the intestinal tract. And now I'm sending food in different directions. So it messes up the release of these hormones in a way that suppresses hunger. Okay. So small portions neurologically think you ate more than you did hormonal changes that make you less hungry, but this procedure gets about 75% weight loss within about a year. So it's about 10% more powerful than the sleeve because it's also associated with a small amount of malabsorption and something called dumping syndrome. Malabsorption means you're not absorbing things as well to absorb food. It has to be more than just chewed. It's gotta be melted by acid. Yeah. And with this procedure, when you eat, Food's going to go into the pouch, but acid is in this stomach. And when food leaves the pouch, it goes this way down this new connection. The acid you make in the other stomach is going to go this way. So food's going down this way. Acid goes down this way. They meet up here at what we call the Y connection and digestion and absorption start here. Where I see in the stomach. Okay. So out of 20 feet of intestine, which is about what most people have, the first four feet here just stop absorbing calories. Yeah. And that adds a little to the weight loss. I and then dumping syndrome, maybe 1% of sleeve patients get it, but about 60% of bypass patients get it. So it's not universal. A little yeah. more than half of bypass patients get it. And it's really just bypass. And what it basically means is that if you eat too much sugar after a bypass, you get a little sick. And when I say sugar, I'm not talking about fruit. Patients can eat pineapple and mango, that kind of stuff. I mean, like a bowl of ice cream. You go to the movies and try to put down a box of milk duds. Or something you don't realize has a lot of sugar in it, like uh, barbecue sauce, or if you go to like Panda Express and get orange chicken or honey chicken. So if you eat or you go to Starbucks, you get a Frappuccino, which is basically a milkshake. You eat or drink a lot of sugar after a bypass, more than half of the patients get this syndrome, dumping syndrome, where within a few minutes, they get a little, little dizzy, a little lightheaded. It's kind of hard to catch your breath. You feel your heart race. About 10 minutes later, you get like shaking chills and sweats and cramps and then diarrhea. It's like food poisoning. And when you're done in the bathroom, you don't go sit down and finish the rest of the ice cream Sunday. I mean, you kind of got to go lay down for an hour because you feel terrible. And I can tell you this, very few bypass patients get dumping syndrome twice. Okay. Not because it goes away, because the first time they get it, they're going to be like, okay, screw that. I'm done. Time out. I'm not going to eat ice cream again. In fact, most of my bypass patients don't even know if they get dumping syndrome or not. They're so afraid of it. They just kind of avoid sweets altogether. And if you're not eating sugary, starchy sweets, you're going to lose more weight. It's part of the reason bypass is more powerful. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So for the, for the dumping syndrome, so, you know, I think that the one that from a med students listening, you always worry about low blood glucose, you know, the sugars being too low. That's a no good thing. Do you have any patients that do have to be on long-term crazy meds like nasty or carbos or diazoxide or somatostatin, mm -hmm. or is that just, 
in textbooks for board exams. You know what I'm saying? No, you're right. It's a good question, but it is a rare, relatively rare side effect. Now, hypoglycemia after gastric bypass is not uncommon. Hypoglycemia meaning low blood sugar. Yeah, yeah. Especially in patients who were diabetic before surgery. This surgery is so powerful at treating diabetes yeah. that it can actually cause some hypoglycemia after surgery, especially in patients who eat too much sugar. Okay. Because your body becomes so good at treating high blood sugar after a gastric bypass that it overcompensates if you eat sugar. So you have something really sugary, your sugar goes up. Yeah. And now your body's so good at releasing insulin and you become so sensitive after this procedure. Yeah. And an hour after eating a high glycemic index meal, yeah. your sugar is now bottom out. Now you're walking around with the blood sugar of 60, which causes cravings yep. and your body release cortisol, which makes your sugar come back up. And it causes these crazy swings in blood sugar that can be yeah. sometimes difficult to manage. The way to prevent this in our patients, and this is something that we counsel them on before yep. surgery, is to have frequent small meals throughout the day. We want you to eat about every two to three hours, a snack, a meal, a shake, like a protein shake. And you need to avoid high sugar meals. The other thing we have to counsel patients on is when this does happen, especially patients who are diabetic beforehand, who are seen an endocrinologist, they were trained to carry around sugar tablets or candy, okay. right? <laughs> you know, you get low blood sugar, you pop a piece yeah. of candy. If you do that after a bypass, it makes it even worse because it skyrockets higher and then it bottoms <laughs> out even further. So to treat and prevent this, you eat something like peanut butter, a handful of nuts, a piece of string cheese, some avocado, okay. fatty protein. It brings your sugar up a little more gradually, but doesn't shoot it so high that it I see. In. So you get these normal fluctuations. Okay. So it's something that's relatively easy to treat and prevent, but we do have this conversation every once in a while. But like you did say, every once in a while, I do have to refer patients to a specialist, like an endocrinologist, to, to get a little more aggressive treatment. And you're right, acrobose or some of the, uh, the sulfuronarias that kind of yeah. control these sugars are, are sometimes where we have to go. But that's actually relatively rare. Gotcha. throw a percentage on that. <laughs> one one or two percent of patients, maybe, maybe not even that high experience something like that. I mean, I love that first part. That was almost going to be, I'm going to put that on my medical podcast because that was so awesome. But I want to get to some, I want to get some patient questions here. So I kind of okay. divided them up a little bit into nutrition, pregnancy and lifestyle. So is weight loss surgery, in your opinion, a cop out? That's what one of my listeners wants to know. Great question. I get this a lot and I kind of have a standard answer for it because look, I probably see seven to 12 new patient consults a week. And if at least one of them doesn't break down and cry, it's, it's odd. Like it was a weird week. And it's, it's because I think a lot of patients, by the time they get to me, there's this aspect of feeling like a failure. I couldn't do this on my own. I, I tried exercises. I spent thousands of dollars on programs like Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig. I hired a trainer and I'm still obese and still struggling with its side effects. And now I, I'm such a loser. I got to go see this guy and cheat to get my way up. And I look at it as the complete opposite, Dr. Raj. I think by the time you get to me, if you've made the decision to have weight loss surgery, that takes a lot of guts. This is, takes great strength to realize you need help. And there's nothing wrong with asking for help. No. I mean, you got psychological issues. You don't sit there and suffer and be depressed. You go talk to somebody about it. It's the same thing with this. Medical weight loss doesn't work. There's no drug, there's no diet plan, and there's no program that has been shown to have consistent long-term effects. If there was, you wouldn't be talking to me. I wouldn't exist. There wouldn't be a need for bariatric surgery. You'd, everybody would just use that pill or that medicine or that program. So the fact that this is the only known and definitive way to treat obesity 
tells me that the patient, by the time they get to me, has done their education, they've done their research, they've talked to probably other patients and other physicians. By the time they get to me, they've typically spent three to five years researching this and have talked to multiple physicians to get a referral. So I think it takes great strength. I don't think it's a cop out because this isn't an easy way out either. You no, don't have weight loss surgery, put your feet up and drink three lattes a day and lose a hundred pounds. You're not going <laughs> to my ass after weight loss surgery. You have to be ready to fight. I, I'm not just a surgeon. I'm a life coach. I'm not like Tony Little or anything like that, or Tony <laughs> Robbins, I mean. But I, at times, I, I got to be the bad cop. I've yeah. got patients who aren't losing the weight they want to lose or have regained some weight. Sometimes they need a little bit of a, you know, verbal coaching. Well, I got a, I got a woman, one of my, uh, who has a really good question. I think this is going to be great. So when a woman wants to have surgery, as we've been talking about, when can they get pregnant after the weight loss surgery? And is it safe for the baby when she does get pregnant? And I guess that's a good question because good of the fact that we're talking about, you know, malabsorption of certain nutrients and vitamins, depending on what you pick and heartburn and all these things. What's your answer for that? Yeah, that's a good question. It's And it's a well-researched question too. So I see a lot of referrals from OBGYNs for patients with PCOS and infertility because obesity- so We should define it, polycystic ovarian syndrome for those who didn't catch okay, that. Sorry, I'm trying to not be too medical jargon, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so polycystic ovarian syndrome can affect a woman's ability to get pregnant. It causes hormonal irregularities. It can lead to funny hair growth and cramps, but most commonly really infertility. And obesity in itself causes menstrual irregularities because fat tissue produces estrogen and higher levels of estrogen affect your menstrual cycle or your ability to ovulate, let alone high levels of estrogen increase your risk for certain cancers and other problems too, like heart disease and bone loss. But I see these patients who are struggling to get pregnant, women in their thirties, early forties because of their weight. And so the treatment for that is to lose weight because it dramatically increases fertility rates. And I say this line to my patients all the time, but you have to be very careful with birth control the first year after weight loss surgery okay. because fertility rates skyrocket. I, I mean, I'm telling you, somebody will look at the patient funny and they get pregnant. I didn't know that at all. So it's a wonderful treatment for infertility. Mm-hmm. But in the consent form, I make patients sign. In the conversation I have with this specific patient, I say, you cannot get pregnant for 12 to 18 months. Really, 18 months is better, 12 months if there's a time crunch. Mm-hmm. But you really got to focus on yourself first. This is your year. You got to get your weight off for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's this metabolic window of opportunity after weight loss surgery where you can get your weight off. It tends to last about two years oh, where these okay. hormonal and neurologic changes are most, most powerful. If you get a weight loss surgery and three months after you get knocked up and you're pregnant, the physiologic changes of pregnancy are so powerful you won't lose any weight. You'll probably maintain a healthy, viable pregnancy. It might be a little struggle to eat enough, but you'll probably maintain the pregnancy, but you won't lose any weight. Nine, 10 months later, you deliver. And that metabolic window with all those neurologic and hormonal changes is slammed shut on you. And you've lost your opportunity to lose the weight. So you really got to get your weight off first. Plus getting the weight off first is really what increases the fertility rates. After you lose the weight, 12 to 18 months after surgery, and this is the same with sleeper bypass, it's not only more likely to get pregnant, it's safer to get pregnant after weight loss surgery yeah. than it would to be to be pregnant at an obese level. You're more likely to have a healthy baby, an easier delivery with a lower chance for complications, and a much lower chance to develop something called preeclampsia or gestational Ooh. diabetes, which yeah. is like high blood pressure or high blood sugars that are associated with obesity and pregnancy. Of course. 
The only real difference we've noticed, as long as you wait the 12 to 18 months, yep. is that after weight loss surgery, patients tend to have a lower birth weight baby, not a low birth weight, but lower than what they would have had. Okay. So instead of a nine pounder, you have a seven pounder, which is probably better for everybody involved. <laughs> and they've studied the baby's nutritional parameters after surgery, and they're actually healthier than they would be if oh. they become pregnant when obese. So nice. totally safe, indicated as long as you wait 12 to 18 months post-op. Now I've got some lifestyle questions. I like these. I don't know. I got some smart listeners. I got to tell you, uh, I never thought about this stuff. So if I do the weight loss surgery, and I'm sure we'll talk about any of the ones we mentioned, do people just regain their weight sometimes? And I'm going to also let you answer these two as a combined afterwards because they're losing so much weight. Do I need plastic surgery to kind of take care of all that excess skin and stuff? So how do you feel those questions? All right. So this is not a magic bullet, Dr. Raj. Mm -hmm. This is a tool for weight loss. Mm -hmm. And like any good tool, you got to learn how to use it, bring it back to the shop once in a while, make sure it's working right. And overall, success rates with bariatric surgery are just over 80%. And what we define as success is a patient losing half of their excess weight permanently at the five-year mark. Okay. 80% of patients do that. So if you're 150 pounds overweight, there's an 80% chance you're going to lose at least 75 pounds. But about one in five, 20% of people who have weight loss surgery either don't lose as much weight as they want or regain weight down the road. An 80% success rate with any medical intervention is pretty outstanding. I mean, if I was an oncologic surgeon and 80% of my patients beat their cancer, I'd be the greatest cancer surgeon in the world. And when you look at <laughs> medical weight loss options, pills and diets, yeah. the long-term success rate with that is less than 1%. Okay. So this does work, but it, it still requires effort. It's not a magic bullet. So yeah. Odds are you'll lose your weight, but it does take lifestyle changes. And that's why we don't rush people to the operating room. There's a period of time before surgery. We have to take classes and actually even get psychologically cleared for surgery by a professional. As far as the excess skin, after age 40, your skin does start to lose its elasticity. It doesn't come quite back as well. But I think this question comes from people watching a little too much TV. To me. So <laughs> you watch 600 pound life and those people lose 300 pounds and they have yeah. lots of excess skin. And those people tend to need plastic surgery. But in my regular patient population, where our average BMI is 47, our average patient's about 150 pounds overweight, the loose skin is never as bad as people think it's going to be. Okay. Now, everybody has some. I've never in my career in 20 years had a single patient go, oh, Dr. B, I wish I was an obese diabetic again because now I have loose skin. <laughs> but I can understand how, look, you go through all this hard work, you put in the effort, you get the weight off. You're, you're off your meds, you're living a healthier life and you wake up, you get out of the shower in the morning and you look down and it's like, it's a reminder of what used to be. And for some, it's the final step. Nationally, about 10 to 15% of people go on to get some plastic surgery when all is said and done. And I don't know where it is, how it is at other programs, but I've got a very unique relationship with our plastic surgeons here at my hospital. Very easy referral pathway. They're in fact, directly across the hall from me. I do send about 10 to 15% of my patients and we get about 70% of them authorized for a tummy tuck through insurance. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. So we do have an established referral pathway with plastic surgeon. And if it's surgically induced weight loss, insurance companies do tend to cover it. Oh, so okay. I, what I've learned over the years is when yep. patients come to see me and their follow-ups, I make sure to ask about it. Cause if I document that it's been a problem and we could show that it's a chronic issue, it gives them a better chance at getting it authorized. But that's just for the tummy tuck. If patients are thinking about like a Brazilian butt lift and double D's, you gotta write a check. For that. Okay. Well, I want to ask this one too. So this is another patient question. I don't know where it's coming from, but 
alopecia, which is hair loss. Is that a known side effect from one of these weight loss surgeries or why is a random question or have you seen it? It's not really that dissimilar from the hair loss experience during pregnancy. About 30 to 40% of uh, female patients, my male patients don't tend to notice as much, but 30 to 40% of my female patients do complain about some temporary hair thinning in the oh. shower, on the brush, some clumps may come out. So we put all, all of our patients on biotin postoperatively that helps cells that rapidly turn over like skin, hair, and nails. A good conditioner, believe it or not, I usually recommend mane and tail. It's cheap. It's like 10 bucks. It really thickens hair. A high protein diet. And then just a conversation about don't panic. It's about a three to four month process. By six months, it's not only stopped, but the hair grows back. Look, Dr. Raj, I'd have a terrible career if I made if I made everybody skinny and bald. <laughs> I'd have a wig shop, you know, I'd make some money on the side selling wigs. That's just yeah. not the case. People yeah. lose all their hair. They don't go bald with this. Okay. But some people do notice some hair thinning, which can be disconcerting, but it's temporary. It's not perfect. Now let's talk about vitamins. So the question seems to be surrounding a buy, and there's two people that ask vitamin questions. Do I need to take vitamins after surgery or would I have some kind of vitamin deficiency afterwards requiring to take it? What is it? What's your take on that? One of the things I do before surgery is do an extensive micronutrient lab work panel. I check about 20 different micronutrients, all 12 vitamin Bs, D, A, K, iron, selenium, zinc, copper, the list goes on and on. Because believe it or not, the most common form of malnutrition in the United States is obesity. It's not starvation or malnutrition. It's actually obesity because the diet's poor. And 90% of my patients walk in the door with a vitamin deficiency. So these are things I start to treat before surgery. With the sleeve, about 15% of people develop vitamin deficiencies. And with the bypass, about 20%. I check labs at three months, six months, 12 months, and then at least annually thereafter to follow these things closely. And even though the sleeve doesn't really have malabsorption, both sleeve and bypass patients are required to take vitamins after this. Because you're not only eating less, but with the bypass, you're also absorbing less. So we do have to supplement. A patient on average eats about 800 calories a day after these surgeries. And to get 100% of your RDA vitamins on that small a diet, you just can't do it. So you do need vitamins. Now, they're typically just oral. Okay. The ones that we give are, we recommend ones that are made specifically for bariatric patients by certain companies. They're a little more expensive than what you'd find at Costco, like a Flintstone or a gummy. (laughs) They're much higher quality. And they're absorbable. It, it's tough to swallow big pills after surgery. So you I'm sure like a Centrum AC, it's going to get stuck. So the, the ones we recommend are chewable or capsule. There are new transdermal vitamin patches that oh. are known to be okay. So you can wear a patch sometimes. Rarely, Dr. Raj, we yeah. just somebody get a vitamin deficiency that sometimes requires a shot or an infusion. But okay. that's actually not very common. Most things can be managed just with oral supplementation. Now, I want to make sure I ask this before we we finish stuff, because, you know, mental health is huge. And I think, you know, the the podcast is about wellness and making other people happy. So these were interesting questions. One was about, does weight loss surgery put you at risk for two things? Number one, someone mentioned alcohol abuse. I didn't know where that was coming from. So I just wanted to ask if you ever heard about that or just literature about it. And the other one is suicide. And I think that, you know, depression is such a big thing. I can imagine obesity and depression being related. Have you heard of any of these things? So alcohol is something we talk about frequently with my patients because there's something called addiction transfer. And not all weight loss surgery patients are addicted to food. In fact, rate of mental health disorders in the obese population is basically the same as in the non-obese population. They're 
Interesting. Okay. Believe it or not, the levels of depression, anxiety, bipolar, it's really about the same between obese and non-obese. But we do screen patients for this before surgery. And one of the requirements is everyone has to sit and have one session with a psychiatrist before the operation. Okay. Not only for my benefit, the patient's benefit, but insurance will not authorize the procedure without a note from a therapist clearing them. So if during that session, a therapist picks up on untreated depression or or some kind of substance abuse, those things obviously have to be stabilized before the procedure. After surgery, we ask the patients avoid alcohol for about three to six months. And then when they drink, it's got to be in moderation. Number one, it's a high calorie liquid. You won't lose as much weight if you're drinking a glass of wine every night. Number two, addiction potential does go up after weight loss surgery. It doubles. Is it an association or do we know why addiction increases? I figure it wouldn't because you made the effort to have the surgery. One of the addiction transfer, you go from one vice to another, but the the actual thought is the metabolism of the alcohol is dramatically different after bariatric surgery, especially the bypass. Now, normally alcohol is broken down in two areas in the body. Everybody knows the liver, right? You drink too right. much, it causes it right. up your liver, causes cirrhosis. But even before it gets to the liver, in the stomach, your stomach makes an enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase. Sure. So alcohol molecule is cleaved in your stomach before it goes into your intestine to be absorbed. Okay. It goes into your bloodstream and it gets to your liver. Mm-hmm. But with these procedures, I'm taking out a big part of your stomach, the part that makes alcohol dehydrogenase with the sleeve. Wow. Or with the bypass, I'm bypassing it. So that one drink, which used to get broken down in your stomach, that entire drink now goes into your blood system. And one wow. drink will feel like three. In fact, studies show yeah. with bypass that with one alcoholic beverage, and this was done on 300 pound men, this study, yeah. there was an 80% chance they blew 0.08 on a breathalyzer. So 300 pound man with just one drink really can affect your cognitive abilities. Of course. That rapid onset of action. Yeah. Buzz you get from alcohol. Yeah. A little different after surgery. It's like, woo, you're a little loopy. It takes a little longer to that metabolism to get out of your system. And so it's more addicting in that sense. It's a different buzz. And so you got to be very careful with alcohol after surgery. Well, the minute you mentioned alcohol dehydrogenase, that was it. I'm putting this on the medical student podcast too. They're going to they're gonna eat that one up. They're going to eat that one up. And then was that a two-parter? About the suicide. Yeah, you know what right. I mean? So across the board, rates of death decrease in every category after weight loss surgery, except in suicide and accidental deaths. Oh my God. Accidental deaths because yeah. patients start doing stuff they haven't done in many. They skydive, they go rappelling, they, <laughs> they do some crazy... I'm going to run with the bulls now that I can run. And then they die. So that's accidental. That's a little bit because patients become more active. Honey, the bungee cord seems kind of fun now all of a sudden. Yeah, right? yeah I can I the great requirements. Yeah, I do. I have patients who are like, I just want to, I've never been able to ride a horse. Yeah. Because I don't need, and they go ride a horse and they get thrown off the horse because they don't know what they're doing. Suicide rates actually double. But yeah. as scary as that sounds, yeah. it goes from 1.6 in a thousand to 2.9 in a thousand. Okay. It's, we're not talking about like everybody's committing suicide after weight loss surgery, but there's a slight increase in suicide risk after surgery. Your guess is as good as mine on this one. And, Look, and I wonder if it's the people who didn't get the benefits or didn't listen to the rules and the potentially way maybe somebody's regained their weight. Yeah, I, I don't know. Look, this what really does change after divorce rates double after weight loss surgery. Wow, because now it's yeah. a whole new him or a whole new her, and oh my god. Yeah, and it's not really the patient having issues, but oftentimes the spouse, as they see their loved one lose weight, behaviors change. They're now more active. Their libido goes up. 
They didn't, they never wanted to leave the house. Now they want to go dancing. They're buying new clothes. They're waking up again. Their life. Yeah. And that can make somebody insecure because look, you reach a level of homeostasis in a relationship. It's been that way for many years and now this can throw it off. So we do warn patients that your spouse needs to be on board. They have to understand that this may change things at home. And so these are things we address. I love my audience. I love your answers. I mean, I've learned so much. And so one more before we kind of close, and that's going to be, I think I know what the answer is, but I want to hear it from you. And one of my patients wants to know, surgery is surgery. And, you know, for anyone, especially someone who's not in the medical field, they think of going on the ventilator and being in the ICU and having surgery and the knife and all these things. Is the risk of dying from the surgery itself more or less a comparison to dying from just living with obesity, you know? This is a good one. This is an easy one too. Mortality rates with sleeve and bypass, both procedures is basically the same, meaning what percent of people don't survive the first 30 days after this procedure? It's one in 700. Now that sounds a little scary, but that is as safe as it gets for an abdominal procedure. For example, gallbladder surgery, the most common surgery done in the United States every year, mortality rate with that is one in 500. Appendix is one in 300. Hysterectomy is one in 300. Knee replacements, one in a hundred. The knee? Yeah. The knee? Cataract surgery is one in 80. Mortality. You're going to kid me. Now, maybe okay. because when you get your knee replaced, you're 75 years old. Maybe there's other risk factors. Okay. <laughs> but that, those are the averages. It's not okay. like my patients are healthy people. Yep. You know, my patients are high risk patients too. Yep. But one in 700 don't survive the surgery. That's how safe the actual operation is. As far as long-term risks, and a very impressive study was done about 10 years ago that looked at 7,000 obese people followed them for five years and looked at the rates of death. And of the 7,000, 1,000 of them did have surgery. So they had two cohorts. Okay. What they found is the patients in the non-surgical group, the obese people who didn't have surgery were 10 times more likely to be dead in five years than the ones who did have surgery. So if you've got a patient who's worried that they're going to die from weight loss surgery, you can accurately and safely tell them that they're 10 times more likely to to be dead in five years if they don't have it. And surgery has been shown to extend life expectancy by anywhere from three to 12 years. And not just extend life, but better quality of life. So it's safe, it's effective, improves quality of life, and it is much safer than walking around obese. Any final words, advice, tips for people considering bariatric surgery? What is your kind of like take-home message? If you're considering it, you've probably already made the decision and just haven't come to grips with it. Look, there's not a whole lot of other options for obesity. The only durable, proven, and safe way to get the weight off in the science books today is bariatric operations. These are well-studied. They're done at centers of excellence. There's oversight from a national database. So they are held to the highest standard. This is not the old cowboy world of weight loss surgery 50 years ago. We're fellowship trained. There's dedicated fields of study in this. And it's proven to be safe and effective. The misconceptions online are just that. They're misconceptions. Yeah. And there's a lot of good information out there. You can find support. My suggestion to patients who are considering this is go talk to a bariatric surgeon. Just because you go talk to them doesn't doesn't mean you have to have surgery, but you should hear it from the horse's mouth. Odds are they're going to convince you that it's your best option. It's the safe option. It's the effective one. And uh, the two things I hear most commonly are, I thought this was going to be harder and I should have done it five years ago. Wow. Well, let me just parlay that with hearing it from the horse's mouth. So 
if people listening today want to find you, how can they find you? Is there a... Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you just type in my name, Dr. Justin Braverman, I'll pop up, you know, first on most search engines. But I do work out of a big hospital called PIH, Presbyterian Intercommunity Hospital. We're a three-hospital, thousand-bed system in L.A. We have a center of excellence in bariatric surgery, and our office number is 562-789-5444. Every Tuesday night, we have online support groups and education classes, which is a good point of entry for some patients. You don't have to come in. You can just log in and get a little overview. Or you set up an appointment for a consultation with one of our surgeons. And you get a little hour-long sit-down one-on-one to see if this is right for you. And so that's probably the best way to do it. Just call and make an appointment or come to our classes. You know, Justin, I have to say, you are you really made it so easy for the patients. You made it kind of nice and some pearls for my medical students. Thank you so much for being here today. Pleasure, and I'll tell you, I'm going to make you come back at some point because I really enjoyed you being on the podcast today. So thank you very much. Be my pleasure. You were great. Thanks, Rob. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today to the Dr. Raj podcast. Stay tuned for more wonderful stories and tips and advice in keeping healthy. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.